Welcome to the Shari Tzedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Shari Tzedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. My high school's musical, My Freshman Year, was Fiddler on the Roof. And I was the only freshman who had a speaking part. Does anyone want to guess which part? And the choir can't guess because A, they heard at the early service and they can read my sermon on the screen. So that's a double, double no for you guys. Any, any, any guesses? Not Tevya. I was a freshman. <laughs> the rabbi, I heard it. The rabbi. It was typecasting. Um, a blessing for the czar. May God bless and keep the czar far away from us. I think that was my only line, but I still, still have it memorized. So. You laughed more this time than last time. That's good. Yeah. Now, my cantor at the time uh, was very excited for my role. And she told me a story about her time as a student at the University of Hawaii. As an aspiring cantor and leader in her Hillel, she was tapped by a local high school to be the Judaic advisor for their performance of Fiddler on the Roof, in which none of the cast member, none of the cast members and none of the teachers at the school were Jewish. So among her tasks was to explain to the young man who was playing the rabbi about the moment in which he would lock the doors to the synagogue during the song Anatevka, one of the final scenes of the show as the entire village was being expelled, losing their homes and their community. The synagogue, she told him, was like a house for God, and it had been a place in which this rabbi had seen his community through moments of tragedy and celebration, performing the rituals of their ancestors. And now, because of a tyrant's hatred of those traditions and that people, he was never going to see that place or that community together again. Now, Cantor Height would not see the students again until opening night, when she took her seat, excited to see her teaching come to life. The set was just right, the talluses were all worn at the right times, and the Hebrew and Yiddish were spot on. She was especially proud of the rabbi throughout the performance, and as the show came near its end, when it was time for Anatevka, she was impressed to see a tear in his eye as he turned to lock the synagogue doors. It was then that he turned back, faced the audience, knelt, and crossed himself. <laughs> <laughs> 
He got her points, mostly. That final scene from Fiddler on the Roof is so heart-wrenching because while Anatevka was a made-up village, that was the end of the stories of so many villages like it. Tevya's eviction is based on the late 19th century evictions of Russian Jews from so many rural areas. And these kinds of expulsions had been a part of Jewish history since biblical times with a constant threat of violence that was given new life with the pogroms of Russia. As one of the townspeople in Anatevka says after the song, it's just a place and our forefathers have been forced out of many, many places at a moment's notice. To which Tevya replies, maybe that's why we always wear our hats. That's why I wasn't Tevya. Um, he did it much better. Now it's at this point in the movie that we see the rabbi removing the Torah scrolls from the ark inside the synagogue, giving them to different members of the community who would care for them moving forward before he leaves with the last Torah, singing a nigun, a wordless melody, with tears in his eyes. We then see all the residents of the shtetl leaving town in mass, each with whatever they could fit on their cart, discussing whether they were moving to Krakow, Jerusalem, or America. Golda, of course, must sweep the floor before leaving, so as not to leave a dirty house. That scene kept going through my head as we watched Hurricane Ian approaching last week. Many under evacuation orders with all of the uncertainty that accompanied them. First of all, we too at Shari Tzedek distributed Torahs at the end of our services on Monday, as we always do before big storms, giving them to our staff members who are furthest away from the areas of risk. We too, as a community, found ourselves reaching out to family and friends asking, where are you going? But rather than Krakow or Jerusalem, our answers were Orlando, South Florida, Georgia, and even Europe, although I think that trip was scheduled ahead of time. <laughs> and so many of you found yourselves packing up that proverbial cart with those most important things that you were able to fit in your cars, locking your doors, maybe even sweeping before leaving, not knowing what you would be returning to, perhaps not really letting yourselves think about it until the risk had passed. Of course, there are major differences from our ancestors who were forced out of their shtetls never to see their homes again. We know when a storm is coming, able to track at least to some degree its path, while our ancestors constantly lived in fear of their oppressors, not needing an app to tell them when they were approaching. They were always approaching. Our ancestors were forced from their homes never to return. We knew we would be able to come back. We just didn't know when or to what. We also had the option of staying, which depending on where we live, presented different levels of risk, as did leaving, as all those who went to Orlando learned. Now we've done it before, 
But this one, I think, felt different. This one was different. I'm grateful that I waited until after the storm to watch the video of Hurricane Phoenix. Has anyone heard of this? This was a project in 2009, updated in 2020, which simulated what a direct strike of a, hur of a Category 5 hurricane to Tampa would look like. It was terrifying. Although, to be honest, it was no scarier than watching the news last Monday evening. Now, yes, we share this risk with all those living in Florida and elsewhere on the Gulf. We know other coastal cities are at risk as well. But we learned and we know that it carries a different weight for an enormous number of homes in the Tampa Bay area. We felt that weight last week and we still feel it moving forward. We share with our ancestors a feeling of vulnerability, knowing that our homes, our way of life as we've come to know it, so much in our lives is one storm away from changing forever. And whether we live in a flood zone A or E, we all understand this vulnerability in one way or another. So much in our lives can change just like that. And on these high holy days, we find ourselves dwelling in those moments where our own lives have changed in unexpected ways. When things we thought were one way turned out to be another. When dreams were lost. And like a hurricane, so often these changes are out of our control. Our tradition gives us a yearly reminder of the temporary nature of so much of life in the holiday of Sukkot. Now, I hope you'll forgive me for talking about Sukkot this evening while it's still Yom Kippur, but Sukkot is right around the corner, and rarely do we have over a thousand people joining us for Sukkot, so this seemed like my best chance. Although with all of the wonderful things that we have planned for Sukkot this year, I really do hope that we see a thousand people. So traditionally for Sukkot, we would live in the sukkah, a hut built outside our home for a week, or at least have our meals there. A sukkah, by definition, has to be temporary. We dwell in it only for seven days. It's not allowed to be taller than 30 feet, for that would require a permanent structure. And the roof is made of schach, which is the best Hebrew word there is. Schach means vegetation. We use palm fronds. You'll also see bamboo. In Colorado, we had corn stalks. But whatever you use, it must allow for both light and rain to come through. And the schach cannot be nailed to the structure, making it even more vulnerable to wind. The structure itself must be strong enough to withstand a normal wind, but not necessarily more than that. And I know I'm not the only one who has had my sukkah blow into my neighbor's yard. While there's a debate as to whether or not a sukkah on a boat would be kosher, the reason is, and this is debated in the Talmud, since a sukkah doesn't have to be able to withstand a strong wind, a sukkah on a ship would not survive the seven days. After all, a sukkah cannot be too temporary. We read that an elephant 
is only permitted to serve as one of the walls of a sukkah if it is tied up because otherwise it might wander away and you would then be missing a wall. Yes, that's really in the Talmud. Yes, I love what I do. And this is when I wish I had a visual up on the screen for you. Um, I've never actually seen an elephant as a wall for a sukkah though. Next year, <laughs> definitely. But a sukkah can be very flimsy. As Rabbi Abraham Cook wrote, Jewish law validates a sukkah even when it has gaping holes, when it is built from little more than two walls or has large spaces between the walls and the roof. Even such a fragile structure still qualifies as a kosher sukkah. Rabbi Cook, or Rav Cook, as he was best known, became the first chief rabbi of Palestine, as Israel was known while still under British control, just over 100 years ago. And Rav Cook grew up in that same Russia of Fiddler on the Roof. So he certainly understood what it meant to live in a time of uncertainty, to feel vulnerable. And he wasn't questioning why such a flimsy sukkah would be permitted. That he understood. His question came from one of our daily uses of the sukkah as a metaphor for peace. Each night in a prayer that appears in the evening service and is also traditionally said before going to sleep, a time that was considered peak vulnerability during antiquity, we ask God to shelter us in a sukkat shlomecha, a sukkah of God's peace. Rav Cook asks, why pray for a sukkah, a makeshift booth of peace? Would it not be better to have a fortress of peace, strong, secure, and lasting? He continues explaining why the sukkah is actually the perfect metaphor for peace. Peace is so precious, so vital, that even if we're unable to attain complete peace, we should still pursue a partial measure of peace. Even an imperfect peace between neighbors or between an individual and the community is worthwhile. Rabbi Mark Saperstein elaborates, we erect structures of peace with care, but they are all too easily blown over by the strong winds of group hatred and extremism or undermined by the seeping waters of suspicion or consumed by the fires of nationalistic self-righteousness. In order for the edifice of peace to remain standing, we have to be constantly on guard, Saperstein writes. We cannot take it for granted that peace once achieved will automatically endure, a lesson learned all too bitterly in our own time. This is true everywhere, in our own families, communities, cities, and our nation. Saperstein continues, the metaphor of the sukkah reminds us that maintaining shalom, maintaining peace is not a given, but a process that requires constant work, focus, and care. Rav Cook and Rabbi Saperstein teach us that it is precisely the fact of knowing that peace is temporary, that it is so vulnerable to the elements that makes it so precious that inspires us to want to care for it and nurture it. 
To live in a fortress can lead to taking one's home for granted. But when we care for and nurture something we care about, we come to care about it that much more. Now, most of our homes are closer to fortresses than the flimsy Sukkot that Rav Cook and Rabbi Saperstein were imagining. But when faced with a Category 5 hurricane that could bring 150-mile-an-hour winds and a 10-foot storm surge, even our fortresses are as vulnerable as a sukkah on the deck of a ship. So just as we would try to protect our sukkah in a storm, so too were we doing whatever we could to protect our homes last week. But what I saw that was even more beautiful was the way in which we were doing what we could to help our neighbors. Maybe it was helping someone put up their hurricane shutters or moving things to a higher floor that were heavy. And when we couldn't physically help, we were reaching out, offering support. Friends from out of town who would normally text were calling, wanting to hear our voices and wanting us to hear theirs. Just as we discussed on Erev Rosh Hashanah, even as we approached the storm from different places with different needs and different concerns, we faced it together. We nurtured our Sukkot Shalom, our shelter of peace, even as we felt the vulnerability of our physical structures. Brene Brown wrote in her book, Daring, Daring Greatly, admitting our vulnerability Learning to live with uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure is letting God in. It is also key to a meaningful life. Why? Because that's how we connect to others. And connecting to others is what makes life worth living. Ultimately, while we do everything we can to prepare before a storm, what happens to our homes is out of our control. But those Sukkot Shalom, the Sukkot of peace under which each of us dwell, those are very much in our control. Those are the connections, the relationships that we were nurturing this past week, validating our core values and making sure that they were strong and intact, regardless of the outcome of the storm. That was the inspiring message that I heard from so many of you. We have what's important, you said. We're with our family. As we think about our bigger family and the larger home we all love, we know that sukkah of peace is often tested in our larger world. We have been living through a storm in so many ways, and as our world feels so divided, as we hear the discourse surrounding us, it may feel sometimes like the sukkah of peace under which we dwell has blown away completely. Yet, I believe that had disaster struck, those divides would no longer have mattered. Families would have come together. We would have come together as one community, supporting those with the most needs, supporting one another, because that's what we do. We would have recovered we would have built back and we would have done it together. Perhaps the most touching part of the end of Fiddler on the Roof was Tevya and Laser Wolf, 
who had become nemeses, hugging and wishing each other well. Disaster, we know, can strengthen the Sukkot Shalom. And I pray that the knowledge that we could have faced disaster will have the same effect, reminding all of us of that which is most important. Our High Holy Days are a reminder that when relationships are damaged, we can take the time needed and put in the hard work to repair them. I don't believe that God decides who by fire and who by water. And I don't believe that God determined the course of Hurricane Ian. I don't think we prayed any harder on Rosh Hashanah than they did in Fort Myers or Naples. But I do believe that God gives those suffering the strength to survive. And God gives those seeing suffering the compassion to help those in need. I know that our community will continue to support our neighbors to the south even after the news cycle has moved on. And yet, I do thank God that I am not giving a different sermon this evening, that we are gathered safely, learning from what could have been rather than what was. So in addition to helping those whose lives were shattered, which we will continue to do, we will continue to ensure that our homes and our families are protected the best we can. We will pray for wisdom for our city, county, state, and other community leaders who continue to prepare for future storms as we do everything we can as individuals and as a community to support that work. We will do what we can to protect our planet, trying to heal that greater sukkah that we know is all too vulnerable and battered itself. And most importantly, we will protect our relationships, caring for and nurturing those that are strong, not taking them for granted and always trying to make them stronger. And at the same time, doing all we can to begin to mend those in need of repair, knowing that even if we fell short these high holy days, those gates are never closed. Those Sukkot can always be tended to. Fiddler on the Roof begins with Tevye giving a monologue. Here in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. You guys knew it too. So for Tevye, that word was tradition. For us, in our little village of Tampa, we too can sometimes feel like fiddlers on the roof. What keeps us up there is love for our home, love for our community, maybe also love of sun, beach, and winning championships, but mostly 
It's love of this community, love of what we've built here, love of what we know we can continue to build here. And it's also that tradition. It's knowing that we have always been more than where we live. We are more than the physical structures we've built and the things that we've acquired. We are nurturers of a Sukkot Shalom, a sukkah of peace that has given us strength in our times of need, a home built out of love that we pray will continue to strengthen and help us to weather any storm. Ufros alenu sukkat shlomecha. Shelter us, God, under that sukkah of peace that we may be protected together, that we may protect one another through all of life's storms. Kenya may this be God's will. Amen.